From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has so far refused growing international pressure to commit to net zero emissions by 2050. Now he's facing a concerted push from MPs in his own party to embrace the policy. But on the other side of the coalition, right-wing nationals are refusing to budge, including senior figures in the government. Today, national correspondent for the Saturday paper, Mike Seckham, on how climate politics has wedged Scott Morrison and why he's running out of time. It's Thursday, October 7. Mike, the federal government is currently debating whether or not to adopt a position of net zero emissions by 2050. But while that process has been going on, their colleagues in New South Wales have moved even further ahead. So can you tell me about what the state government there has announced? Yes, yeah, for sure. The first thing to say is that there was a big announcement last week, but even prior to that, the New South Wales government, like all the other states and territories in the country, had already done what Scott Morrison dares not, and that is commit to carbon neutrality, to net zero carbon uh, greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. So they'd already done that. But on Wednesday, the announcement came out that they were going even further and that New South Wales would halve its greenhouse gas emissions, well, roughly halve, by 2030. And that, of course, is roughly double the commitment that the federal government made at the Paris Climate Conference six years ago. So it was a pretty big advance on what the feds have uh, committed to. And that's significant because not only is it one of the biggest emissions reduction commitments in the country, it's being implemented by a conservative government and a completely united conservative government that includes both the nationals and the liberals being on side. And that is, of course, not the case in the federal parliament. And so it's really ratcheted up the pressure on Scott Morrison, especially, you know, in the lead up to the next big climate summit in Glasgow next month. So how has the New South Wales Coalition managed to implement this kind of policy, Mike, especially seeing as climate change has been such an internal headache at the federal level for for more than a decade now? Well, um, let me give you the short answer, courtesy of Matt Keane, who I spoke to about this. He was able to convince his colleagues, quote, that you don't have to believe in climate change to believe in capitalism. This provides a template for the Prime Minister and the Federal Coalition as to how they can take action on climate change and grow our economy. I mean, the policies that work... So when I spoke to him, he told me that the way he got everyone on board was by saying that they would only put in place these policies to reduce emissions where they were sure they would create jobs, they would lower the cost of living for families, they didn't impose extra costs on business, and that they drove investment and grew the state economy. So in other words, he argued for climate action by using economics... I took to Cabinet a plan to update the state's ambition or target or goal or whatever you want to call it to 50%, which Cabinet adopted unanimously, backed in by Nats, backed in by Conservatives, backed in by Moderates. This, of course, leaves unstated the obvious contrast with the Federal Coalition, where Scott Morrison clearly can't get the two warring sides of the issue to any kind of compromise. And so what kind of pressure does this announcement put on Scott Morrison and on the federal government? Well, quite a lot. I mean, New South Wales, we should note, is not the first Australian jurisdiction to set an ambitious 
target for emissions reductions by 2030. Victoria also is committed to 45 to 50% reduction. The ACT, which is the most ambitious, is aiming for 65 to 70%. Most of the states have more ambitious 2030 targets than does the federal government. But the New South Wales announcement is particularly humiliating for Morrison because, firstly, it came from a coalition government, unlike Victoria and the ACT, and secondly, because New South Wales is a big fossil fuel economy, you know, as is Queensland. And so this is really just another bit of public pressure on Morrison and on the federal government to take up a more ambitious position on climate change. And he's been facing a lot of it, not only domestically, international pressure, most notably from the uh, United Kingdom, where they've been urging him to pledge net zero commitment. We must show that we are capable of learning and maturing and finally taking responsibility for the destruction we are inflicting, not just upon our planet, but upon ourselves. He's been getting pushed by John Kerry, who's the president's special envoy in climate from the United States. I think Glasgow has to not only have countries come and raise ambition, but those countries are going to have to define in real terms what their roadmap is for the next 10 years, then the next 30 years. He's being pushed by Pacific Island nations. The upcoming COP in Glasgow is our point of no return. Our commitments from there onwards will determine the future trajectory for our planet. And of course, he's being pushed by those within his own government who are demanding the same thing. On the other side, though, Morrison, or more correctly, the National Party, are being wedged largely along state lines. Someone referred to it to me as the Brisbane line. You know, north of Brisbane, you have all these right-wing nationals who are just vociferously opposed to any change on climate policy. So that's the problem. He's getting pressure to do more, um, but at the same time, he's getting big-time pushback from those who don't want anything further to happen. And in fact, you know, would like to see new coal plants open up, would like to see more gas, would like to see more coal mines, the whole box and dice. But with the climate summit looming and shortly thereafter an election, he's running out of time. We'll be back in a moment. As a a 7am listener, you're already familiar with many of the journalists who work for The Saturday Paper. For a limited time, subscribe to Australia's leading independent news source, The Saturday Paper, and you'll receive The Saturday Paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. As a a 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read POST, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Mike, we're talking about the battle that's dividing the federal government, the battle over what to do on climate policy. Let's talk some more about the group who are pushing for greater emissions cuts. Who are they and, and what is behind their advocacy on this issue? Well, um, this group is largely liberal moderates who live in metropolitan electorates, often very affluent, well-educated liberal electorates where the constituents are very concerned about climate change. 
And so these members are struggling with their party's lack of policy because, you know, their constituency is deeply concerned and they can see that the government isn't doing anything. So they're worried about the electoral consequences. You know, Labor's gunning for them. The Greens, obviously, gunning for them. And now there's sort of a loose grouping of independent candidates who will be gunning for them. So this is quite a big movement, and it's getting support financially from a group called Climate 200, whose convener is a millionaire investor and a climate activist, Simon Holmes Accord. And at the last election, this group, Climate 200, gathered a war chest of about $500,000. This time, it's already got around three times that amount, you know, and the election's still quite some distance into the future. Admittedly, this isn't much by major party standards, but it's certainly enough to scare the Liberal Party. And that was evidenced last week uh, when someone gave me a copy of a, a plea that had been sent out by the Federal Party director, Andrew Bragg, to potential donors, in which he said, and I'm quoting, we can't risk more left-leaning independence tipping Labor and the Greens into power. And then he asked for people to give him money. So clearly the Liberals are worried, and they have some reason to be worried because the people who are part of this movement are not, by and large, that left-leaning at all. Most of them are disaffected small Liberals. And the seats that they're targeting include those who are held by moderates like Dave Sharma, Trent Zimmerman, Jason Falinski. And it's interesting to note that all three of those people have been very out and very vocal in their advocacy of greater ambition on climate policy just lately. But the most high profile of the lot is um, is the federal treasurer, Josh Frydenberg. Mm. So should Josh Frydenberg be worried then? Is he at risk of losing his seat, Mike? Well, Frydenberg's seat is, is really one of the jewels in the Liberal crown. It was Sir Robert Menzies' old seat. It's absolutely blue ribbon, affluent, but he nearly lost it at the last election. He got less than half the primary vote. And the Greens got more than 21%. Labor got almost 17%, and another climate-focused independent got almost 9%. So Frydenberg's feeling the pressure. Markets are moving as governments, regulators, central banks and investors are preparing for a lower emissions future. It's a long-term shift, not a short-term shock. Last week, possibly partly in response to this, he publicly declared that he was supportive of net zero by 2050. What I want to make sure is that Australia is not disadvantaged um, by these structural and systemic changes that are occurring in financial markets, and to the contrary, that Australia is advantaged by these change and capitalising on those new opportunities. So that was a pretty big call on his part, and it promptly drew an absolutely furious response from the other wing of the government, you know, those opposed to these kind of moves. Mm. Let's talk about that element of the, the coalition, Mike, those who are opposed to, to taking this kind of action. Who are they and, and what is their position on net zero? Well, um, they're mainly from Queensland. Um, most of them sit as national MPs, but there are some Liberals involved as well. And they range in their vehemence. The most vehement are the former Resources Minister, Matt Canavan. People can't get enough of our high-quality coal, and they will continue to demand that for decades and decades to come. But the, uh, A bloke called Jared well, Rennick. Well, I, I don't think we should sign up to any foreign agreements in terms of climate change and stuff like that. We There's have. No, so, well, well, I know we have. I mean, I wasn't in that government and I disagree with what we did. And George Christensen. Energy, it's too expensive and we need to bring costs down. And uh, one way we can do that is by pumping more baseload power into the system and the cheapest form of baseload we have 
is coal-fired power. And uh, they... It's hard to see how they would ever be persuaded, quite frankly. Um, there's a dozen or so others who profess concern for the jobs of their constituents and the economies in their regions. You know, they tend to represent um, fossil fuel-dependent seats. And they are to varying degrees persuadable, depending on whether an economic case can be made. And I might add, this lot includes some quite senior members of the government. You know, the current resources minister, Keith Pitt, is one of the intransigents in cabinet. Um, so is the nationals uh, leader in the Senate, Bridget McKenzie. And, and of course, Barnaby Joyce, the party leader, was a long-time climate sceptic, and he's still hanging out to be persuaded of the economics of any shift. And at the same time, of course, he's trying to keep his fractured party together. I mean, it's really um, daggers drawn within the National Party at the moment. Um, but there's electoral imperatives on both sides, I guess is what you have to say. For the, for the right-wing nationals, it's the imperative of the interests of their electorate and the fact that they're being pushed from the right. And for the you know, inner urban liberals, there's an electoral imperative from their constituency and that they're being pushed from the left. So, um, you know, it's hard to see how the two will ever meet. Mm. So, Mike, where does all of this leave Scott Morrison then? Because net zero by 2050 is by now in some ways a fairly uncontroversial policy that's supported by most Australians and it's now been embraced by state governments, including a coalition government in New South Wales. But the federal government seems consumed by trying to fend off parties and candidates on both the left and the right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I mean, the irony here, of course, is that, you know, it's a relative handful of people in the parliament who are holding the whole thing up. But, you know, Morrison needs their votes. He's got the narrowest of majorities. So where does it leave him? It leaves him <laughs> tap dancing his way towards the Glasgow Climate Summit next month, I guess, and after that towards the election. In the case of Glasgow... He's taken to using various forms of weasel words, you know, around net zero by 2050, you know, saying that uh, the government hopes to get there preferably by 2050. So, you know, he's being very careful not to um, say anything that will be stuck to him by the right. Next week, the Australia Institute, you know, big progressive think tank, is launching a major report written with a bloke called Saul Griffiths who's an Australian who's been based in Silicon Valley doing all sorts of interesting stuff for about 20 years. And he was a climate advisor to the Biden administration um, and has been working very closely on their very ambitious climate plans. And anyway, I spoke to him ahead of the, the release of this report, and he was absolutely scathing of the Morrison government's climate response, you know, particularly its emphasis on the so-called gas-led recovery. And what his report will say is that if Australian households electrified everything, you know, cars, cooking appliances, we had efficient electric heating and cooling, we would not only cut our emissions by 40-some percent, but save the average household five to $6,000 a year on their energy costs. And if industry did the same thing, they would achieve similar cost savings and our total emissions would be reduced by 70%. So there is a very positive future ahead of us if only we had the leadership to embrace it. Mike, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for yours. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. 
Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also in the news today... New South Wales Nationals MP Paul Toole has been chosen by his colleagues to replace John Barillaro as the state's Nationals leader and Deputy Premier. The member for Bathurst defeated Water Minister Melinda Pavey in a secret ballot on Wednesday. Bronnie Taylor has been appointed Deputy Leader of the New South Wales Nationals Party. And US President Joe Biden says he's discussed Taiwan with Chinese President Xi Jinping after Beijing sent a record number of military aircraft into the island's air defence zone. Top diplomatic officials from China and the US are set to meet this week in a bid to ease mounting tensions between the two states. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.